1: دفع الديرنديل تشاكست رجحت مع ايني سميث الكره البعيده البحث عن اوباميان كره ممتازه روه هراب 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 روه, هراب روه This is ArsCast Extra.
2: Hello and welcome to another ArsCast Extra as always with James from Golo Blog. James, good morning to you.
1: Good morning, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm okay.
2: I'm okay. We've overcome some technical. Uh, jiggery pokery right there where Mm. everything that's been working fine for years that you know changes people make changes to things and they do so because i guess they're thinking we'll improve it but i like Mm. things staying the way they are when they work just fine so yes to hell with progress (laughs) well yes in some aspects certainly (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there are there are things where I think progress is necessary, but other things, you just leave well enough alone, and it's okay, and it was working fine, and, and now I'm going to have to figure out how to work it, because at some point, the new version will become the default version, and you can't use the old version. This is all very exciting stuff for our listeners, I'm sure.
1: Yes, but, you know, we're here. That's the important thing. That
2: is the important thing. How is
1: your interlol going? It's fine. It's... Um... Uneventful, I have to Mm. be honest with you. I've not been paying uh, a great deal of attention to the international football. Um, I didn't even watch the England game, really. They played Andorra. Uh, And I didn't get sucked into the Nations League final. (laughs) I couldn't quite find it in myself.
2: I thought it was amazing last night when I uh, discovered that there was an, uh, well, an uh, is it an international tournament can we really call it an international technically. tournament technically it is with a, a final between who is it france and spain yeah,
1: yeah i that's mean that's nice.
2: that's a tasty game
1: yeah and there were semi finals earlier in the week i actually did see a bit of the belgium france semi final which was a really entertaining game i think 3-2 to france at right. the end but uh yeah, what, a tasty what, looking fixture.
2: What do they win? I mean look, yeah, a tasty looking fixture that I looked at and went, Well, I genuinely could not give a single fuck about this because what well, what do they win?
1: In I the think this they Nations get League? into the Champions League. Ah. I think yeah. I think <laughs> Didier Deschamps will leave France into the Champions League next season. The holy right. grail of European football. I, I I think they just get a a little um trophy. A plaque and Maybe like a not a star on their kit, but like I don't know an asterisk, you know some sort of little symbol, a hashtag
2: hashtag <laughs> um, nation nations league twenty one
1: yeah embroidered all across the back. I don't know England got to the semi finals last time round, um and then went out i mean it, it's a, it's a curious competition, I suppose what I, what I would say is I probably prefer it to sort of the sheer pointlessness of friendlies, but but like playing Andorra. Well, I mean, that's the World Cup qualification. <laughs> oh,
2: right. So yeah. what's the difference? Mm,
1: who knows? I mean, England's <laughs> World Cup qualifying group is quite mad. Um, I think they've got Andorra and the Faroe Islands in the group. So it's thriller minute stuff. Mm. Uh, but, you know, Bakai Saka scored.
2: He did. That's I good. Saw that. That's good. Uh, I, I'm I'm glad when he scores. Are you in any way... Uh, heartened by the fact that he was able to play 90 minutes for England because we you know we saw him towards the end of the Brighton game go down with a bit of an injury and then there was nothing more said about it so i figured there was nothing else uh you know going on right there but
1: yeah Arteta did say one thing after the game where he said he's fine basically um he said you know it's it's not a, a serious problem so mm. i always suspected he was likely to go away with England and uh, I think he's now scored in consecutive England games um, first Arsenal player to do that for a, a long time who, but, was, who um, was the last one I don't know actually uh, but I remember seeing a tweet from like Orbinio or Opta you know mm. one of these accounts uh, that made me think oh that is a little while who could um, it have been Ian Wright it,
2: Alan Smith
1: yeah He's the youngest player to score in consecutive appearances for the England men's team since Wayne Rooney in two thousand and four, and the youngest ever Arsenal player to net in consecutive games for England. But it doesn't say who the last is. It has to be Ian Wright, doesn't it? I think so. I'm trying to think of who else it could possibly be. Mm. Merson, maybe, or Parla. But I, I think let's let's take a stab at Ian Wright.
2: Mm. Yeah. Okay.
1: So uh, he scored. That was nice. T- um, Thomas
2: Partey scored.
1: Thomas Partey scored a goal all of his own making. Won the ball on the left hand side, drove in field, and uh, put it in the corner, like in the net, in between the posts and everything. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. I was. Well, he's got a good
2: goal scoring record at international level. It seems he has. Uh, yes. I think it was Charles Watts who did a tweet that said it's something like 11 goals in in 33
1: appearances. It's about one in three or something like that, yeah. Uh, which is pretty impressive.
2: It is. Are, are you surprised that he has so few caps? It seems like a low number of caps, doesn't it? Only 30 or thereabouts.
1: Is that right? Mm. Yeah, it does seem really low. Um, I'm suspicious of that. Well, transfer really? marked...
2: Transfer marked uk says he's made 28 appearances for Ghana. Wikipedia says 31 say and all,
0: yeah.
1: So there, there, about 30-ish. For a 28-year-old who's been around a long time, mm. you know, sort of broke into the FSK Madrid team in, like, 2015 kind mm. of time. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, uh you'd expect more. Yeah, he Can't made his out.
2: debut in 2016. Aged 22 years, 11 months and 23 days. That's the info that I have right here in front of me. So, But look, the main thing is the goal. So are you hoping now that when he returns to Arsenal, he'll be full of goal-scoring spunk, if you like?
1: I think this is, wow, what an <laughs> image. I think this is the start of a, a hot streak. Um a Joe Willock-style hot streak. He's going to score in every game between now and the end <laughs> and of the season. then we'll season.
2: sell him to Newcastle because they've got so much money.
1: <laughs> there you go. We sold uh, Joe Willock too soon. That's what I've realised this week. I We'd saw, only held yeah. on till now.
2: I saw people say that, but then chances are they might have set their sights elsewhere. Yo, if they oh, hadn't already firm, got I, Joe I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. So, look, I mean, uh, we should maybe chat a little bit uh, about this Newcastle thing and mm. um, how it's all played out over the last um, few days. What are your yeah. um, overreaching thoughts on, I don't know, how to. what way do you approach it? Like, can you talk about what it means for the Premier League, what it might mean for Newcastle, what it might mean for Arsenal, what it means about football in general? I don't know exactly where to... Where to begin with
1: this one? Um, well, many listeners have sort of got in touch to flag um, the kind of dubious, the sort of moral and ethical mm. concerns over a team uh, nicknamed the Magpies ha- having access to that sort of money.
2: Yeah, I saw one on the Discord. DJ Rad B said, should we hate Newcastle, considering they are, after all, Magpies and are extremely dubiously wealthy magpies at
1: that we've always known on this podcast that Mm. magpies were a threat and in fact if anything on football in football terms that hasn't always played out newcastle looked relatively safe Mm. but now that's all changed that the prophecy has come true the magpies are here to, to take us
2: they are they're going to take everyone out uh, so <laughs> yeah I mean we'll, we'll see how it plays out look I mean we did have questions about it so given this is an interlull okay. arse cast extra we might do questions in both halves of the show to give us some talking points as we go along so uh, again from the discord uh, Emil smith row your boat says there is an almost unsustainable amount of cognitive dissonance that goes into being a fan of top flight uh, top flight football clubs are bought by everyone. Richer billionaires, or in some cases, human rights abusing states using the game as a PR vehicle. The governing bodies seek only to enrich themselves further as they allow the sport to be used by charlatans and intervene solely when their slice of the pie is being threatened. Can you envisage a point where enough is enough with elite sport for either of you guys? Alternatively, do you think it's more likely that football will eat its own face to the point where it comes crashing down, or can these people rely on a never ending stream of? new fans to sell this product to
1: nice easy question to get us going today wow 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 i mean i do think there probably is no sport or no sporting competition that has quite sold itself in brackets sold itself out Mm. uh in the manner of the premier league like i i don't Mm. think it's rivaled in terms of that in terms of its sort of um Either, I guess, it's capacity to generate revenue, but also it's capacity to kind of chase or welcome money um, in any avenue possible. Mm. Uh, and so the, the the point is right. There is a huge amount of cognitive dissonance required. In a funny way, like, <laughs> like for a lot of people, this Saudi Arabia interest in Newcastle, well, this takeover, um, may be a kind of, to borrow a phrase from your excellent blog last week, a straw that breaks the camel's back. Mm. But it's also just like another straw. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like it's a big straw. Very big. But it's also just another straw. It's kind of like it makes you reflect on it and it makes you think about it. But ultimately it doesn't feel like the situation is drastically different to what it was the day before. Um, I kind of feel as uh distanced and disenchanted as I as I mm. did before the takeover, you know?
2: Yeah, I mean look, the it's one of these things where whatever angle you come at it from, there's a talking point or, you know I, yeah, I thought there yeah. was a great um podcast. Um I know many people here will listen to Second Captains. I think it was one of their their Uh, paywall podcasts on Patreon with James Montague who wrote The Billionaires uh, book about you know football's owners I think it was The Unstoppable Rise of Football Super Rich Owners a really great book and I I interviewed James on on the Arsecast a couple of years ago about that book but he was talking um, on that podcast about you know there is no difference between the Saudi state and this, you know, this fund that apparently is the one that's fronting up to to buy Newcastle United. This is the Saudi state, um, you know. I, I'm trying to learn a bit more about this. I'm reading a book about MBS at the moment, so that's mm-hmm. eye opening in its in its own way. Um, it is. It does feel like a bit seismic, though, or something, because. I don't know. So much of it just does not stand up to, to any kind of scrutiny. Like this was a, a takeover that was prohibited or banned. And then there's, you know, MBS texting Boris Johnson to have a word. And then this piracy issue, um, which seems to have been the main stumbling block because, oh, certainly, you know, yeah. the being sport versus the, the Saudi piracy thing that was going on. As soon as that was sorted, this thing has gone through. And it's, it's just, uh, as I've said, uh, you know, on the blog and on the podcast on Friday, almost an inevitability based on the way football has been run and the way football uh, has, like you say, sold itself or sold its soul or will sell any part of itself without thinking about, you know, what it means in the wider context beyond, like, we've got a rich owner now. We can buy good players and chances are, in a couple of years' time, Newcastle, given the wealth that they have, are going to be a team which is enjoying a lot of success because that's what happens when owners with a different level of wealth come in and just plow money into the thing. Now, they've got to do it in a smart way. I think what you could say about whatever you think about Chelsea, you know, they put in place a, a, a system or a structure that really works for them. You know what I mean? Everyone, you, you know, know, you know, the way, um, people were like, well, they don't give managers any time. It's terrible. You know, they don't give, it's like, yeah. well, they just fire them and then bring in a new guy to win some shit. And when that doesn't really work, they just fire him and bring in another guy to win some shit. So from that perspective, it works. Man City, you know, they, 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 uh, brought in these guys from Barcelona, if you remember, um, these executives, um, I don't know if there's any correlation between their arrival at Man City and, and Barcelona's decline. But, you know, they put in place very, very smart footballing uh, practices and structures at Man City and the City Group, etc., cetera, etc. So, but but each one of them had more wealth than the other. So Abramovich came in, had more wealth than anybody else in the Premier League. Chelsea became a powerhouse. Man City's owners came in, had more wealth than Abramovich, became a powerhouse. And it's impossible not to think that unless the people who run Newcastle... um are ridiculously inept or stupid that they're not going to be a Premier League powerhouse. And that is something that we are going to have to contend with over the coming years.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, in general, money wins in the Premier League. Mm. Uh, and, the, the, you know, if you look at kind of the salary bill against the league table over time, there's a clear trend and a clear sort of connectivity between those two things, a correlation. Um yeah, it, I think it will. And it's, you know, while I say the Premier League had already sold itself out, um, don't get me wrong, there is still stuff about this particular takeover that does trouble me. Like, I I admit a certain degree of cultural bias is possible, mm. but the kind of human rights component here, like, around the Saudi state, it does make me feel deeply uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and that's not, you know, I'm not saying, you know, I, I appreciate all. most billionaires are in some way problematic, but I think there are degrees. Sure. And I, I feel like uh, this stuff is particularly bad. I, but In the interest of levity, this tweet really made me laugh. I don't know if you saw this, but mm. um, Alex Thompson, who's a Newcastle fan, uh, this is not funny, tweeted, as a lifelong Newcastle United supporter, I feel sick this morning. No time for Ashley, but he doesn't murder and dismember journalists or chop people's heads off or treat women as third class humans on an industrial scale. What the hell has football become? And then this guy replied to him saying, have a day off, will you? It's just where football is these days. Not everything has to be PC, (laughs) which I think is the most... Extraordinary use of PC, meaning politically correct, I've ever heard. The idea that thinking that not beheading people is just political correctness—these um, really made me laugh. Yeah,
2: I mean, it's just so woke,
1: isn't it? You know, <laughs> yeah, and I'm sick of these people, <laughs> I'm sick of them, and their anti-beheading agenda. Take a day off, will you, mate? Uh, it um, is.
2: I mean, this is the thing, though. I mean, uh, I think. Uh, I read a piece this morning in the Athletic. It was a good piece from Jack Pitt Brook who was yeah. talking about the reaction of of fans, you know. And I've I've like I I think if a an owner came into a football club that had a track record of human rights abuse or intolerance or you know criminalizing uh, you know uh, gay people or whatever it might be that that you know we would like. Uh, to speak out about it and and say something about it. And there's this weird conflation between, let's say the club and the team, you can support the team and you want the team to do well, but you can have issues and take issue with the way that the club is run or the the the, the people who own the club, et cetera, et cetera. So like,
1: it's a, it's, it's a weird. When, when Alisha Zmanov first began expressing interest in
2: Arsenal,
1: mm. um, uh, there were certain sort of allegations around his conduct and his behaviour that that surfaced, and I remember, at least anecdotally, a lot of Arsenal fans voicing uh, opposition to his potential ownership on that basis. What's interesting is that was qu- now quite a long time ago. Mm. Like that was now, I don't know, two thousand six, 15- two thousand seven, yeah, yeah, something like that. A bit more. And I wonder if the same reservations would be in place now, you'd like to think so, but it's kind of like the, the like I say, like football is sort of eating itself at this point. Mm. And a lot of fans who, a lot of fans may just feel that um, slightly depressing thing of, if you can't beat them, join them, you know? Mm. Or
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think there is that sense because A, they just wanted to get rid of Mike Ashley. So anybody coming in who wasn't Mike Ashley was good. And Absolutely. when that person who's coming in has got, 300 billion dollars to their name that's even better
1: um then i think what we should sorry just to say i think if if newcastle had been taken over by a bloke who had like a tenner in his back pocket they'd probably be dancing in the streets they hated mike ashley that much like i do think that's worth saying Mm. this this is very much about mike ashley as well in in defense of the Newcastle,
2: yeah and look i don't think some of the reaction of i'm not going to generalize or anything like that but I did see one particular statement from basically the the Newcastle version of gay gooners uh which I thought was yeah. a really really they really let them off the hook in that statement when <laughs> Just they could a bit, yeah. yeah when they could have made a really strong statement about you know w- what what uh, their stance was regarding the criminality of homosexuality and etc et etc, cetera, et cetera, it just felt like it was just supplicant in a way, and that that's really a shame and and your day to day Newcastle fan, you know, why wouldn't they be pleased that they've got rid of a terrible owner and they've got an owner who's going to come in and potentially make them one of the biggest clubs in the world It's not on the fans i don 't think to to be the moral arbiters of football when football is already gone way too far down the line of um you know the kind of ownership that we're seeing i mean it's impossible as well not to think about well what if this was arsenal what if what if it had happened you know that look the cronkies aren't the most popular owners in the world perhaps not quite at the level of of mike ashley um but like there would be a very sizable majority of Arsenal fans who would like to see new ownership. Mm. What would the reaction have been like if it were the Saudi fund buying Arsenal? It's one of those, you know, you you can't say for sure, but there would be people who would be just delighted about it. There would be people who would have objections. But... You know, I, yeah. th- I think yeah. it's just part and parcel of the way football is right now that they've created this environment in which the only way you can compete is to have a, a, an, uh, an ever richer, ever more powerful, ever more whatever owner. That's the only way you can compete. So why would fans not embrace that?
1: Yeah, well, especially when it feels like it's so out of their control. I mean, ultimately, fans don't determine who owns the club. They can try. Mm. Um, Newcastle fans have tried many times. They couldn't be more clear in their opposition to Mike Ashley. You know, Arsenal fans have asked for Kroenke out, but it's not something within their power to do. So when something like this happens, I can understand how, as a fan, you sort of go, well, I can't, you know, change that. That's the market. That's how this." how this has played out. You know, my interest is in what happens on the pitch mm. and it's possible to find reasons for optimism uh, in that it's, it's really complex. And I have to be honest, like I do see it through the prism of an Arsenal fan. And I think about uh, the implications for my own club, my own team. It makes me reflect on my relationship with our owners as well. Um, Yeah, it's just one of those moments that sort of brings everything into focus, you know. You can't help but kind of take stock when something, as you said, as seismic as this takes place.
2: What, I mean, what do you make, uh, there was a story in The Guardian over the weekend, uh, you know, where the other 19 Premier League clubs were furious, apparently, about this takeover going through. And you can understand why they might be furious because when somebody comes along with with those kind of resources how much they're going to put into Newcastle we'll wait and see but but it dwarfs it literally dwarfs anything else that exists in the Premier League so I can understand why certain clubs might be furious or scared or worried about you know how this is going to affect them but i mean how does how does Manchester City or Chelsea in any good Conscience object to something like this happening when this is just exactly what they did, mm. but on a different scale because of the level of wealth,
1: but football clubs do this all the time, they're always trying to pull up the drawbridge, you know yeah, they're yeah, always trying to protect yeah. yeah, the power that they have accumulated, and you know. it's it's partly what happened with financial fair play. Once everyone had gotten their foot in the door, they were like, right, we better have rules now to stop this happening in future. Or indeed with the Super League. Mm. Well, we're the big six, so let's close that off now um, and we'll just rake in that revenue if that's all right with everyone else. Uh, Turned out it wasn't. Mm. But uh, yeah, that doesn't surprise me in the least, to be honest. Um, It's a weirdly... Because uh, most of these owners want the same things, you know, particularly, I guess, the American owners. Uh, well, the owners, let's say, who are looking at it from a business perspective rather than a kind of state um, sports washing perspective. They're looking for big revenues and they want to guarantee those mm. revenues. And so the self-preservation element is obvious there. What What makes, um, from a competitive point of view, Newcastle, like Manchester City, such a an ominous... Uh, presence for Arsenal and other teams in the Premier League is that the revenues presumably won't really matter to them. It Mm. will be, you know, about winning. You know, it's it's this sort of paradox of, you know, on the one side there's a kind of purity to that in terms of it's about, you know, success and achievements but on the other side it's what that is being harnessed for in terms of the sports washing element that kind of Mm. cancels that out it's a very complex and odd thing
2: yeah i think on the second captain's podcast james montague said he didn't like to use the word sports washing he he preferred the phrase reputation laundering which i think is probably more accurate sports washing sounds a bit you know a bit vague whereas we know that um you know that's exactly what man city's owners have done
1: yeah, and I mean, one of the questions that I keep coming back to, and I think it was based on a tweet that I saw somebody else posit, so I can't claim it's an original thought, but it's coming back to talking about, you know, that, that fan group United with Pride and the mm. gay rights issue. I just keep thinking, like, if I was a gay Newcastle fan, how would I feel about this and how... Um... Well, that's why I couldn't understand their statement.
2: I could not yeah. understand their statement.
1: Well, they, they they will probably argue, as I've seen other groups argue, that um, it's kind of in the spirit of collaboration. And by being on side, we can affect change. But I think that what the likely outcome is, is that f- from a sort of West-facing perspective, we will see change and tolerance, but it won't change anything for, I don't know, gay people living in Saudi. Do you know what I mean? Sure. It will be a kind of... It, uh, uh, along the lines of that reputation laundering, I'm sure they will play ball mm. with our cultural values. Um, Do, yeah, n- here Newcastle Rainbow Laces all the way.
2: But the sure. owners, you know, are in charge Probably of a regime being where- locked up.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's which uh, you know. It, I, 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 obviously, I bring my own sensibilities and my own uh, views to it, but yeah, I just can't. This isn't. I find it really difficult to kind of get my head around that, I have to to say.
2: What do you think it might mean in the short-slash-medium term for for Arsenal? Does it mean anything for Arsenal? I wonder... Obviously, you know, in time, it's going to be another competitor, another big club in the Premier League. You're like you know, we had the big two when it was Arsenal and Manchester United, and then it became a, you know, top four and then the big six. And, you know, we might have a super seven or a fucking whatever, eight. You know, eventually we're going to see perhaps a level of investment and and ownership uh, wealth in the Premier League where some might argue that it it creates – actual competitiveness between these super, mm-hmm. super, super rich clubs. Like, um, you know, it's it's when you look at what's happening in Spain with Real Madrid and Barcelona and the troubles that they're facing and, and the loss of the big stars, you know, Messi's mm-hmm. not at Barcelona, Ronaldo's not at Real Madrid. Um, you know, they have this history to them, but not perhaps the star quality that they used to. Um, you know, more and more, the Premier League is becoming the 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 sort of the home or the 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 destination for the richest owners, and ultimately, that's going to mean the best players. Um, yeah,
1: but I, I, I think with the dissolution of the Super League, I think the Premier League. I think I said this at the time: the Premier League can be the Super League, uh, in my opinion. In terms of its, mm. you know global appeal and attracting stars and all those things um the problem for arsenal of course is are they part of that elite group mm. um and you know there's four champions league places there's going to be at least in the very near future at least at least seven teams looking for those maybe more you know if you think about mm. teams like everton who have access to significant resources? Um, there may be others I'm forgetting as well, but yeah, I think I think it's inevitable that Newcastle will be a competitor. I, I'd say within a few years, that's likely. Mm. Um, because Arsenal, it's not like we're at the summit right now. You know, we're we're catchable, we're vulnerable in some ways.
2: Yeah, I mean, even if we do well, we could be treading water in in mid-table. Um... You know, an optimistic outlook might be that we have begun a project at a time when it might be like the right time to do it, if you know what I mean. Because when Chelsea, um, when Abramovich came in at Chelsea, nobody was really expecting anybody to do that. Nobody had considered that kind of ownership and we'd embarked on this stadium project and all of a sudden the way that you could compete had completely changed. So rather than have a big stadium that you fill with, you know, extra season ticket holders and extra corporate and all that kind of stuff, and now it now didn't really matter what size your stadium is. I mean, Chelsea could play in a 20,000 seat stadium. It would make no difference to, you know, um, how competitive they were because the resources are not coming from what they generate, it's coming from who owns them. This time I just wonder if maybe and I realize this is a very glass half full outlook on things that if the transfer market is going to get another distortion
3: mm.
2: which I think it will with it's Newcastle light, yeah. yeah and it, you know PSG did it when they you know when they spent 200 million whatever on Neymar all of a sudden that becomes like a benchmark figure so if Neymar is 200 million, well, this guy, is not as good as Neymar, but maybe he's half as good, so he's 100 million. It's like all of a sudden Coutinho is worth 150 million. Of course, he never was and never would be, but the transfer market is distorted by the top end, the deals that are done right at the very top. And I think that is going to happen again when Newcastle come in and start throwing money around because what are they going to do? They're going to bring in a new coach. They're going to bring in... New players, they're going to have to make like a marquee signing or two, right? Mm -hmm. So they'll be able to like incrementally improve their squad by offering higher wages, more chances of success, all that kind of stuff. The same way that Man City did when they first started and they spent loads of money on, you know, uh, guys who didn't necessarily... Um, get them to, to the top but because of the, the stature of the players like uh, I think Clive mentioned on the the RS cast on Friday Robinho, you know like there's no he way was the headline one, Yeah, there was sure. no way like a, a player of his stature back then would have gone from Real Madrid to Manchester City other mm-hmm. than You know, they threw so much money at it, it was impossible for him to say no. So that's what they'll do, I think. And I think the Premier League transfer market might get distorted again when Newcastle come in and start throwing money around. So from our perspective, to have built at least the bones of a new squad, young players, young English players, who I think will get more and more inflated now because of because of what Newcastle will do. Maybe, maybe, maybe the timing was, was okay, assuming we can make this squad work.
1: Yeah, I hope so. I hope that's the case. I mean, I suppose you could also make the point that it's um, a case of kind of the game changing on Arsenal just mm. as they settle on a strategy. Yeah, you know, yeah, they, yeah. Two thousand six, they went with the stadium, they went with the long-term view, and then, of course, you know, the all-money turned up and changed everything. And then here they've finally settled on a a long-term strategy again. Mm. Um, And then here come Newcastle uh, with sort of unlimited spending power. Yeah, I hope you're you're right, to be honest, and I hope that Arsenal have done this at the right time and it pays dividends. But it does make me think... um, It does make me wonder if we may have to, if we're to enjoy (laughs) being Arsenal fans, uh, I do wonder if we may have to slightly sort of recalibrate our criteria for success. I know a lot of people will resist that idea, Mm. but I just think when you're competing with nation states, in some cases, with seemingly infinite resources, I mean, in real terms, infinite, you know, Mm. compared to other clubs, I think you have to accept that uh, your chances of the kind of success you crave are substantially diminished. And so it's like, well, if that is the case, where do you derive satisfaction? Where do you derive Mm. enjoyment? And everyone's answer to that will be different, but... Um, like for me, I really like, for example, the, the strategy that the club are implementing. And I think that, you know, I'm really excited to see the development of this young players. And I love the new sort of found connection that seems to exist between the players and the fans that mm. seems to be something that's fostering. Um, and I and I wonder if like over the next five to 10 years, it may be those elements that uh, keep my interest more than if we're going to, Win a Premier League yeah. anytime soon.
2: Isn't it weird though that like Arsenal spending 150 million pounds on young players kind of feels, in the context of what we've just been discussing, vaguely pure in terms of <laughs> in terms yeah. of like
1: how football we is spend perceived. The most we in s- transfer fees. Exactly,
2: we spent more than anyone. We spent some fucking money, and at the same time we're looking at Newcastle and thinking, well, they're going to spend a load of money, you know, not that we're looking down our noses at that because that's just inevitable. Every club does it. They're just going to do it on a, on an industrial scale, I think. But, but in terms of trying to build something or organically, if that's the right word, you know, it is a, it is a weird thing to consider given, you know, what we've done is just spend, either a billionaire's money or a billionaire has helped finance the club to to uh, have that kind of liquid cash to spend
1: true true but i think it is worth saying that in more sense in one sense they kind of give with one hand take away with the other in that as much as we've spent that outlay on the transfer fees i think there is a kind of restructuring and redistribution of salary going on that will i would imagine um Put the club in a sort of slightly, uh, what's the word, healthier position, Um, you know, it's uh, with their wage bill. Mm. And I think um, that probably plays into this idea of like this is sort of relatively sensibly spent. I mean, that can be disputed in individual cases, but Mm. it is odd. It is odd. Like, we, you could argue Arsenal were the big spenders in the last summer transfer window, and yet. Uh it feels like we're about to be absolutely blown out of the water. Yeah. Um uh,
2: There's a question here on Twitter from Fred who's at RLF eighty six. He said, I'm sure you're gonna talk about it, but what are some of the long term implications of the Newcastle takeover? Will the owners of Villa, uh Everton or ours up their spending to compete, accept mid-table mediocrity, or walk away? Um, um, um yeah, what is it going to mean? I mean, is this like um sort of footballing arms race, in a way, whereby, Mm. you know, another rich owner, another oligarch, another nation state will come in to, you know, pick off a... I don't want to call Newcastle a small club, you know what I mean? But what I mean is they haven't had any tangible success since the 1950s. They haven't won a trophy since the 1950s. Huge support, huge fan base big big stadium all of that kind of stuff so the 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 framework is there but an underperforming club I think is probably what I what I should have said you know does that make these clubs more attractive um you know are, are is it possible that you know clubs like arsenal maybe even liverpool to an extent could become like second rate is that that's the wrong way of saying it but pushed out of this conversation that exists you know when it comes to being truly competitive
1: yes i think that is possible i think that the hierarchy will inevitably shift and we're kind of already seeing that you know we've both we've all seen what happened when chelsea came in and manchester city came in and what happens in the short term is as much as we might be uncomfortable with it in the short to mid term this will sort of inject um a, a life and excitement into the premier league product if i can use that horrible mm. word you know this will be a narrative that plays out on sky telly over the next 5 to 10 years of newcastle's resurgence you know probably crowned by them winning the premier league or the champions league or whatever mm. it might be And it will be framed as there's another competitor in the mix. This is the strongest league we've ever had. You know, it's not just a big six, it's a big eight or something now. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I think we'll only see the uh, dangers of the kind of dominance they may be able to exert in the longer term. You know, if you look now, the consistency with which Manchester City and Chelsea are right up there is beginning to be... Uh, a little concerning, alarming, and that's sort of quite a few years into those developments. So I, I think, I, I don't think we'll see any of the current owners trying to get out on this basis. I think that, as I say, the, the Premier League as a as a sort of telly product will benefit from this in the short term mm. and that will see people desperate to hold on to their stake within it. And in fact, what they'll be doing, and I suspect what some of these crisis meetings are about, will be trying to ensure that they don't get squeezed out of the revenue that comes into the league by these by the likes of Newcastle. Um, you know they'll be saying we bring X million fans to the table, uh, we bring this many eyes from China or America or where else it might be. How can that be reflected in the uh, money we take if yeah. we're not in the top four? Say,
2: yeah. Well, I mean there, there is that conversation that's been going on for a long time about you know the biggest clubs wanting a bigger uh, portion yeah. of the of the you know the the revenue um, from foreign rights and all of that kind of stuff and I think at least the one thing you would say about the way the Premier League money is, is divvied out in that sense is that it's equal to all the clubs whereas I know that you know big clubs like Arsenal like Manchester United like Liverpool have been lobbying hard in the past for a bigger slice of that pie perhaps because mm-hmm. they thought stuff like this was going to come along
1: yeah and I think that lobbying will will only increase now but I don't anticipate like say to reflect on our own situation someone like Stan cashing out or or selling up at this point because I think um, I just think that from his perspective the league is going to attract probably even more attention become as I said earlier become a kind of super league of its own and any um Mm owner of sports franchises is going to want a stake in that
2: mm. it's a mad one isn't it it is a mad it is one.
1: really mad and it, and it and it definitely I mean I can't lie you know amidst all the ethical concerns and my worry about the game you know I did just have this sort of feeling in the pit of my stomach as an Arsenal fan of like well we, you know that, we're fucked from a competitive <laughs> perspective yeah like, we we could really easily get kind of squeezed out here. And then it sort of becomes about, as I said before, like, what does, <laughs> you, you have to... I mean, listen, there are, there are fans who support teams up and down the country who've never won a thing in their lives, you know, mm. uh, and for whom that is their bread and butter. But it's such a shift for us, having been at the top, having been at the summit at the sort of turn of the millennium, um, two decades on to be looking at the situation thinking like, well, we might get, you know, we might have our Leicester year where we win the league or we might win a few cups or we might sneak into the top four. But in terms of dominating English football, I do think that's probably gone right now.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, uh, dominating is such a, a big word, you know, but, but being, yeah. being competitive and having a chance at least, to to sort of mix it with, you know, what you consider the traditional big boys as so Liverpool, United, Chelsea in recent years, Man City, of course, um, you know, but it all feels increasingly artificial, I have to say. Um, mm. And that's... That's maybe, again, something we're all going to have to to reckon with to some extent or another. And, you know, what do you get from it? Do you get enjoyment from it still? Do you not? Is there, you know, there would be something very exhilarating and exciting and rewarding, I think, if, you know, if we could be a competitive team doing it the way we're doing it. And again, mm-hmm. I realize that is by spending a lot of money, but also... With a clear footballing strategy, it's not like we're going out to buy Galacticos to, to, you know, mix it with the big boys. So if you can, if you could grow something, you know, albeit you've spent big on the ingredients, um, if you could grow something that becomes really competitive, I think that would be, that would be very enjoyable, you know, at least to be, um, what's the word, you know, Competing with and up there with these guys who have those resources, who are bolstered by endless, endless billions in their bank accounts. Um, to mix it with those guys doing it the way we were doing it would be great fun, I think.
1: Yeah, I, I think. don't get me wrong it can happen and sometimes it will happen it will probably depend on us getting an awful lot right mm, yeah. <laughs> you know almost nearly everything right uh but i think inevitably that will that will happen i mean the other the other sort of thing it will happen from time to time i mean what what my worry is is that over time the trend will be so much in favor of these infinitely wealthy clubs uh but i'm sure there will be seasons and occasions and spells where We do threaten that and we do find ourselves in the mix and that will be thrilling because I suppose what you can cling to if you're not winning things Mm. as an Arsenal fan is, you know, do I believe in the way we are doing things? You know, do I, am I excited about the players, Mm. the style, the project? Um, Basically, I think being a football fan is tolerable if you believe that things might be better tomorrow. Uh, and what Arsenal are doing right now enables that belief. Mm. And I think that's of critical importance.
2: Mm. It's, yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see how it all plays out. Um, yeah. Yep. Anyway, look, there's going to be plenty more to come on all this, I'm sure.
1: Uh, so look, I, mean, I mean, the other thing on. is just in the very short term, I mean, you know, Newcastle, they're not going to turn this round in one January transfer window. No. So it will take a little bit of time. And there may be some teething problems as they inevitably figure that out and, you know, buy the wrong player for too much money. and mm. So maybe it's also imperative that Arsenal try to capitalise on their kind of head start while they can. Um, Agreed, yeah. So, you know, it brings, although we've got a kind of long, mid to long term project here, it brings the short term into very immediate focus too.
2: Mm. OK, well, look, uh, short term is uh, coming up after the interlull, but um, I think we can save discussion of much of that until maybe Friday on the Cast. then. But now we'll take a break, will we, and um, do some more questions in part two.
1: Yeah, and we've even got questions that aren't about Newcastle. Wow, okay. Yeah. Exciting
2: times. (laughs) We'll be right back. Welcome.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side?
2: Back to the Arsecast Extra, this is part two where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at Gunnerblog and at Arsblog and also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you're an Arsblog member on Patreon. You can sign up if you like, patreon.com forward slash Arseblog. James, you said you've got questions that aren't about Newcastle, so how about you kick <laughs> off with a question that isn't about Newcastle?
1: Uh, okay, yeah, why not? So... Uh, what about this one from the Discord and Blade uh, I don't know if it's the, the vampire ding just... ding, 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 ding. Yeah. and Blade says after watching Phil Foden for England the other night sit a bit deeper in midfield and ping balls all over the pitch do you think this is something Odegaard could replicate I thought it was super effective
2: Um, I mean he has the passing range
1: he kind of did it against Burnley right
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's difficult to say exactly because it wasn't necessarily a brilliant performance from from Arsenal on the day. Uh We won, but he was obviously put there to kind of do that. I'd have to go back and look at his passing stats against uh, Burnley to see how effective he was in there or wasn't. Um, Mm. I mean, I think he's certainly capable of it, and we've talked a bit about the absence of Granit Xhaka and you know, how that might impact the, um, uh, you know, the formation and the way that Mikel Arteta sets up his team. So Mm. I think he's a little bit different to Phil Foden, but definitely in terms of his technique and his passing range, he could do that. He could Mm. definitely do that. He's a hard worker as well. I'm just going back to look at the uh, player statistics. Same,
1: I'm, I'm just having a look. So he was Arsenal's best passer on the day, 52 of 62. Uh, 84% mm. basically past completion. 33 of those in the opposition half. So basically half in the opposition half, mm. half in his own. Um, mm. And his, I was just looking at his sort of pass selection. His most frequent pass actually was Gabrielle, which tells you quite how deep he was playing. Um, Receiving or giving or playing to? Playing to Gabriel. Wow. Yeah. Ten times. But I guess because he was often receiving, that he came deep to receive the ball, mm. maybe back to the opposition, you know, yeah, yeah, back yeah. to the full-back. Um, he also played nine passes to uh, Bukayo Saka. So it wasn't mm. like it was, you know, it, it was sort of heavily weighted towards Gabriel. But interesting nonetheless. Um, mm. I, I think he can do that, actually. I think he... I thought the way he played against Burnley was really interesting. I mean, there's sort of been a bit of debate about, was it a 4-3-3-3 or 4-3-3-3? That would be a If we can get that on the pitch, that would really help. Or a 4-1-4-1. I felt at times it was almost, you know, diamond-shaped with Odegaard and Smith-Rowe either side of Partey or him and Partey on a slight slant. I think it's a possibility. I think... Sambi Lukonga, you know, was picked for the Brighton game in that role. Mm. But I'll be interested to see what he does for Palace on Monday. You know, home game. Opposition, I think we really should feel confident enough to kind of do what we want tactically. Mm. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if Arteta sticks with Sambi or if he mixes it up a bit in the middle of the park.
2: Yeah, I mean, we have to wait and see how everyone comes back after the interlong oh, yeah. as well. I've so forgotten there about is, that. There is that side of things. So, yeah. But like you, yeah, I, I, I would like to see us if that can be considered going for it, because you get that extra attacking player on the pitch, if you drop Odegaard deep and you put in Smith Rowe, Pepe, et cetera, et cetera. Um, The conundrum then is, is sort of like, which side do you put Saka on and which side do you put Pepe on? Um, Mm, So that is one. I mean, here's a question from Andy Bick, who says it's become apparent so far that Martinelli and Pepe are going to have bit parts again this season. How can Mikel Arteta expect them to be effective if they're sitting on the sidelines? Cup games are few and far between. And I can already see the lone move noise before January comes along. I think we did. We talk about this last week with Martinelli Um you know whether a, a January loan would be a good idea, but given Aubameyang and Pepe are going to be off at the uh, Afcon, there's no way we can loan him out. But it is about how much involvement he's going to get um, over the coming weeks and months uh, because he, he does need to play a bit.
1: Yeah, I think we talked about the, on that. On uh, we did a an episode of statements. Oh, the, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. For the, the Patreon listeners, and we, there was a debate on that about Martinelli's immediate future. We've, I think we both said we thought he couldn't go in January just mm. because of losing Aubameyang and Pepe to AFCON. And the more I look at the AFCON, the more it worries me. I have to be honest, it's not just those two. It's also Thomas Partey. It's also Mohamed Elneny. Um, people were more than that one, slightly less. But it's a decent chunk of the squad, yeah, isn't it? Um it is. a away for a few, uh, at least a few weeks. Um, so that is a, a little alarming. I guess we'll cross that bridge when we get to it, but... I mean, Pepe, he did start the first few games. It is worth remembering. And he, he's kind of the 12th man in the team, I would say. Mm-hmm. Like, he's the first off the bench and he's sort of the first, I would say, to come in if we change the shape or lost one of those attacking players. I think he's going to get plenty of minutes. I think the Martinelli case is a little bit different. You know, he has been an unused sub, um, I think, five times this season Mm. and I I think maybe he more than anyone has been a victim of the change back to three three changes in a game you know it's sort of like it's genuinely quite difficult for him to get on the field at present Um, yeah well it
2: do you think there's um, like some clarity about what exactly his role is or his position is do you think that could be an issue because like if you take the 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 setup where we use Emil Smith-Rowe on the left-hand side um, and that's Very quite effective yeah exactly a completely different kind of player to to Smith Rowe he, he doesn't uh, he doesn't do and can't do what Smith Rowe does there and if that's what Arteta wants from a player in that position it's not going to be Martinelli is he a centre forward it seems like Lacazette is you know you know he's the one that came on for Aubameyang against Brighton it wasn't Martinelli so uh,
1: I think it's as simple as that he's a little really, bit you know. stuck isn't he yeah, like if you're going to bring on a new centre-forward, it's going to be, well, for Arteta, it's going to be Lacazette. And if you're going to bring mm. on a wide attacker, at the moment it's Pepe. And Martinelli's sort of the odd one out. And, you know, often they've been making changes in central midfield, bringing on Maitland-Niles or Laconga. That's your three subs. Mm. Um, and let's not forget, there have been games where Lacazette's not got on the pitch either. Yeah, I know people are a bit more at ease with that because he's not part of the long-term future Um, whereas we're all hoping that Martinelli will be. Mm. But yeah, he's in a bit of an awkward spot. I'm not... um, I I sort of foresaw this, to be honest. I always thought that it would be tricky for him to get a regular place. And I do think the way Smith Rowe plays from the left-hand side is a big part of that. It's such a big change to go with Martinelli there um, that I I don't necessarily foresee that happening too often. Mm. But... but I'm not, I mean, I'm also not stressed. I do think, you know, it may just be one where he has to show a bit of patience. Um, I, and I know that we all want to see more of him and we're all excited about what he can do. Mm. But he is still young. It is worth remembering that as well. Mm. What about you? Are you worried about it?
2: Yeah, a little bit. Just because he's not playing as much as we would like. And, um, you know, last season he had. An injury hit season, I think, because, you know, he came back after that knee injury and was eased back in and then got an ankle injury. And, you know, he's still really young, but I think clarity over where he's going to play will give us uh, more room for uh, discussion about this, because right now we're not 100% sure about exactly where it is he's going to play. He did start. Mm -hmm. Didn't he start the Chelsea game up front? He did.
1: He started the Brentford game as well.
2: Yeah, but he Balogun was playing up front in that Correct. game. Yeah, yeah. So
1: left.
2: You know, it's it's really about where Martinelli is going to play. Um so like I could see all the arguments for like how a loan might be beneficial, but um yeah, I don't know. It's it's a strange one. The, the,
1: the issue is I think in January, you've got <clears throat> the AFCON situation, which will, mm. I think, prohibit a loan move. And, at the st- and so you could say, well, maybe we should have him out for the first half of the season. But you've got to remember, at the start of the season, we had no Aubameyang and no Lacazette. Mm. So they and had no Nketiah either. And no Nketiah either. So they had to keep him around at that time. So a loan move sort of, you know, has not been possible for a variety of different reasons. Um I, I yeah, I think his time I think his time will come. I, I think it will continue to get minutes in the domestic cups. I mean it's it's Leeds, isn't it, in mm. not too distant future. I think it's a fortnight tomorrow. Um I think he'll play that game. It's just one of those tough ones, you know. If we mm. had the Europa League, he'd be playing every week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um Okay, enough of that. Here's a question that relates to Newcastle. <laughs> <laughs> uh Chris BK says, Is there any concern that the new Newcastle regime may try to poach some of our best young players, as Man City did with Nasri, Clichy and Adebayor. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah, of course. Um, You know, why wouldn't they go after some of the best players in the league? And when you're... Like, you can become vulnerable pretty quickly uh, with a player's situation. You know what I mean? I'm, am I right in thinking that come the summer, Bakayosaka will have two years left on his deal? I know uh, he signed a new that contract.
1: My, it I, was twenty twenty. Yeah, she signed well, that. was it a, yeah. was it like I, I I
2: seem to think it was a four year deal. I could be wrong, but so
1: transfer mark. I can't remember what we reported at the time. Yeah, transfer Marks report that as twenty twenty four. Now
2: whether they, know there, there know might there be was an option? An
1: option? Or yeah, yeah. Um. Look, I think the. It could be a renegotiation point. And I think also you're, you're talking about a player who has gone from being a promising young player to a regular England international in that time. Um, yeah. His agent will probably expect that to be reflected.
2: Of course. Of course. Um, look, as we always say, the best way to keep your best young players is to ensure they have an environment in which they can thrive, they enjoy their football the the chances of winning things are there. I mean, mm-hmm. when it boils right down to it, that is why a lot of our players left. Mm-hmm. It's why Cesc left. It's why Van Persie left. Um, I'm not going to make any um, excuses for Nasri, uh, but, you know, there was a sense that Arsenal were not going to be as competitive as some of the other teams in the Premier League. And that was when, you know, there was still only a big four, top four. You know, we finished top four year after year after year with those teams. But it, was, it wasn't it was about, you know, being in the Champions League. It was about being in a team that could win things. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, obviously, the landscape has shifted quite significantly. Whereas we, I think you know, would look at a top four finish this season as a real success. Back then we were thinking, well, that's not good enough. And that wasn't good enough for some of the players. So it's all about uh, a trajectory, I guess, that the team is on. if we're a good team, then Arsenal boys like Smith-Rowe, like Saka, should want to stay. But if the team is underperforming and somebody comes in with, Big money transfer fee, big money in salary, and an almost ironclad guarantee that you're going to be playing for a club that could compete for the Premier League and will be in the Champions League, etc., etc., you're pretty much screwed, you know? Mm. That's the simple reality of football.
1: I mean, it's interesting in the question the players mentioned, Nasri, Clichy, uh, and Adebayor. I mean, by the time at least two of those went, I'm thinking of Klichi and Adebayor, it wasn't mourned too much by mm. Arsenal fans. In the short term, do you think uh, the presence of Newcastle United may um, make for a kind of willing buyer for some of the players we we might not want to keep.
2: (laughs) There was a question, I think, uh, about this. Uh, Anita Holder, who's at Anita Holder on Twitter, said, which current Arsenal player would you be willing to sell to Newcastle at a ridiculously inflated price? You know, because City did, I mean, they bought Clichy, they bought Nasri, they bought Colo Touré.
1: Colo Touré, yeah. Was
2: there one more?
1: I can't remember. Adebayor, for sure. Adebayor, yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Um... They gave us Samuel a lot of money. On a free, unfortunately, but yeah, they did give us uh, plenty of money down the years. Some of it was well spent for them. Some of it less so. Mm. Um, if, yeah, is there an Arsenal player? Which one would I be looking to sell? I mean, K- Kolasinage. Kolasinage. <laughs> Well, I do wonder if, like, will you know, will uh, you know, a lot of these players who are Arsenal have played Champions League football previously. And mm. It depends how smartly run Newcastle are going to be, you know, and, and what exactly their sort of recruitment profile they're looking for is. Um, mm. You know, they, they gave us a good chunk, a decent chunk of money for Joe Willock in the summer.
3: Yeah,
1: um, They're going to have a hell of a lot more than that spend now. I don't know. I think in a lot of cases it comes a bit late, you know. Like, if this had happened with Saudi Arabia, say, in the summer, mm. then someone like Lacazette, for example... You think, okay, may would they be interested in a you know guy who's played in the Champions League for Leon and played for Arsenal and but but I think with six months left on his contract, you're not really going to get the uptake there that you might otherwise. Um, also, I, I worry about you know while it might be good in the short term, you know you get a few quid off them in exchange for some players that help them on their way up. Um, it's only in the short term, right? In the long term, they're still going to probably blast past us. Mm. But it, listen, I mean, if they want to give us, you know, 30 million for Rob Holding or something like that, uh, let's talk. Yeah. I've got
2: a burned Leno you could have here as
1: well. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I've, got, I've got a burned Leno. Um, Callum Chambers is lovely.
2: Yeah. He's a lovely guy. He'll really connect with the
1: Newcastle fans. I guess a Hector Bellerin, you know, if when he comes back from his loan. Mm. Um, there's probably a few more that, you know, like you could talk yourself into. For sure. Imagine P- Pablo Marie in the resplendent black and white. <laughs> They'd love it. I can imagine that, yeah, yeah. Uh, they just need to be convinced. Uh, do you have any? I, I tweeted the other day that I've got this sneaky feeling that Newcastle will, will, will go for Harry Kane as their kind of. Um,
2: <sighs> yeah, I saw your I saw your tweet of, all right. I saw yeah. your tweet. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if they tried, but it would really surprise me if he went for it.
1: Right, because they, I just I just think he 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 seems like a man who sort of looks a bit broken at Spurs, and like his his escape route has been blocked off really in the case of Manchester City, and I wonder if they might be able to frame it to him as you know you'll come here, you'll wear Alan Shearer's number nine, you'll you'll lead the team into this revolution, and your parting gift will be. Champions League qualification. I don't know. It, mm. I guess it depends if he thinks he's ever going to get the move where he gets immediate access to trophies. Well,
2: know? that's it. It, d- it did seem like his desire to leave um, was because he wanted to actually win something, which, of course, mm-hmm. he has no chance of doing Impossible. given
1: that Impossible he plays for
2: Tottenham is. because I don't know if you heard this or not, uh, but news emerged last week that they get battered everywhere they yeah, go. Yeah, and, so.
1: and it's it's everywhere they go, Everywhere.
2: Actually everywhere they go uh, so yeah we know he's not going to win anything at at, uh, at Spurs I would just be really surprised
1: but then again what do you think Newcastle will look to do like do you think they'll I think be it'll be smart. like a will they be smart
2: I don't know um, I genuinely don't know I mean they could be but I think they've got enough money to make mistakes you know that's the thing. They've got enough money where they can just keep throwing
1: more and more money at it until they get it right. Um, I, I think there'll be, like, maybe a, a marquee or a couple of marquee names, and then it'll be sort of, like, big six cast-offs. Like, Jesse Lingard feels, like, nailed on. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I know players who mean. aren't quite there for the biggest teams... Kovacic yeah. or somebody like sure. that. Sure, Callum Hudson-Odoi, something like that, mm. you know. Um,
2: what do you think their their first big signing will be? Because I'm pretty sure it'll have to be an attacker of some kind because there is nothing like that kind of signing to, to really excite people and to sort of, you know, in inverted commas, make a statement of intent, you know. So it'll be a big name striker from somewhere.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I mean, like I say, I've, I have I have a slight sneaky feeling about Kane, but I think that'd be more one for the summer. Um, it really depends which route they go. Will they just get look to get someone who's like a media established mm. quality? Will they look to sign a young player? Um, will they be doing a sort of a similar thing to Arsenal in the market in terms of looking at a five-year project? Um <laughs> re- Five-year project when you've got three hundred and fifty billion to spend. You know. Yeah. Well, yeah. It doesn't give feel give likely, us that it?
2: money and we could do it in like six weeks.
3: Easy. I think.
1: <laughs> I, th- I guess the real answer to this is it's about the really interesting moves are going to be who they get in to really run the club. You know, Steve Bruce. Um, it's not really an appropriate analogy to use, but his head is very much on the, the chopping block uh, right now, and I think the manager is going to be fascinating. And I think the, you know, the people above the manager as well.
2: Well, yeah, that's, that's going to be very interesting because who, who are they going to bring in um, to, to properly run? Because you assume they're going to be run like, like a Chelsea, like a Man City where the coach as good as he might be is instantly and always um, expendable if you know what I mean.
1: So at Chelsea, yeah, they have more these more true of executives. Chelsea than Man yeah. City. Because Man City, I think, was about, it felt to me anyway, like it was about creating an infrastructure for Pep. Like, yeah, yeah. In yeah. some ways, it was laying the ground for him. And, you know, maybe Newcastle are like, we want it to be Klopp in three mm. years. And so, we bring in the sporting director dude who's leaving Liverpool and we mm. create that infrastructure so that when he's done with Liverpool... You know, maybe we can get here. I don't know. It'll be fascinating to see. So interesting. Um, It's a great job for somebody. (laughs) Well, look,
2: anyone who goes there is going to leave um, much richer than when they came
1: in. That is Oh I imagine the pay will be all right. Yeah. 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 Um, Yeah. Yes, very interesting. Uh, By the way, actually, I thought I'd ask this because you mentioned – burn Leno there and there was a question here on the discord Mm. but who was it by I think it was by Bellerin then out was it I think so. what does it say it may be the one is it yes it is it is yes and 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 the question was once Leno goes in the summer So I think that's a fair assumption. Mm -hmm. What profile of player do you envisage being Ramsdale's backup? Will we go for a young up-and-coming Ramsdale S-keeper or should we go for a been-there-and-done-it type? And who would be your first, second choice?
2: That's a really good question. I suspect it would make more sense to have that kind of... If Ramsdale has firmly established himself as the number one and given he's, what, 23 years of age and will have plenty of years left ahead of him... I think you do probably go for that more experienced goalkeeper, the classic number two type, your, your Adrian, your whatever, Mm. you know, I can't even remember the names, but everyone knows the kind of profile of, of player I'm talking about where there's
1: Stuart mm, Taylor. Yeah, exactly. Richard Wright.
2: Yeah, exactly. Those guys probably a loose end still Stuart Taylor, um, still at it. I'm sure. Um, because
1: I mean, his how football much- age is very young. <laughs> you know what I mean, he's like Thomas Zidzinski. Yes.
2: Yeah, I think it would probably be that. I don't know who, but that would make more sense to me if Ramsdale has firmly established himself as the number one.
1: What do you think? Yeah, and that's the big if, isn't it? Like uh, you know, we don't know how the season's going to play out. Hopefully, mm. uh, he continues as he started, and in the, if that is the case, I think bringing in someone more experienced makes loads of sense. Mm. I also think, like, it's good for the young goalkeepers in the squad to have someone experienced to off and work with. Mm. It's not just Ramsdale, it's people like Oconquo, Carl Hine. I think it'd be great for them to be mm. around someone who's sort of been there and done it to an extent.
2: What was, I, I did see a question, um, and I can't find it now, apologies, but it was about Bernd Lennon or, or uh, Aaron Ramsdale's gloves. <laughs> Do you find them yeah.
1: slightly creepy?
2: Yes, disturbing they're,
1: I think they're Adidas are they um, I don't know and uh, they're sort of like a predator glove you know like they're kind of they've got like grippy bits all over them mm. but they are slightly alarming they sort of have the look you know when people wear those socks that have toes oh yeah you see people
2: don't people do long distance running in those kind of things
1: yeah yeah they do I saw someone run past me in them the other day actually Ugh. I know. They're gross. I spat at them for good measure. But I uh yeah, they're <laughs> they are slightly odd. They're sort of um and they and they're sort of tight to his hand, you know mm. what I mean? It's like they're almost uh, reptilian.
2: Mm, reptilian, that's exactly it. They're a bit like uh what was that film about the woman who uh She falls in love with a kind of lizard man who lives in a cage it was out a couple of years ago it might have been oscar
1: nominated it sounds brilliant i've got no idea what it is Uh, do you mean the man who lives in the water yeah the man the shape of water yeah the shape shape of of water. water yeah
2: yeah yeah maybe it's just his first step into transitioning into a being who can live in the water well do you know that his nickname
1: is the lizard aaron Ramsdale?
2: Why is why is that?
1: <laughs> well, he was asked about this the other day. On in, I think it was a video with him away for, on England duty, and that they were asking about nicknames. And he was like, obviously Rambo Rammers. Ramy, but also Ramy all the Ramerson. Sheffield United boys, rammy Ram Ram. Yeah. Uh, r- but he said all the Sheffield United boys call me the lizard, and he was asked why, and he said, oh, it's because I've always got my tongue out in photographs, but. <laughs> I don't know. Is it because they know that those gloves are, in fact, not gloves, but just the start of his skin transforming into some sort of agile goalkeeping reptile?
2: Do we do, uh, uh, you know, when a player gets a physical and they go through their medical, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, do we check for tails?
1: Maybe he's got do a we, tail. Yeah. Do they do some sort of DNA test <laughs> to be like, is this man a mammal? Are we sure – he looks like a goalkeeper. Are we sure he's a mammal? Do you remember the TV series V? No. Remember that? You
2: don't – oh, it was about – oh, it was probably the 80s, so you weren't born, okay. and, born and shit like that. I was born, but
1: only just – first yeah. episode, 84. I missed the start of it. Right, yeah. But end. basically it was about aliens appearing
2: all over the world in spaceships, and they came down and they pretended to be, like, our friends and we'll help you, et etc. et cetera. But then it turned out they were actually lizard people underneath it all they were like space alien lizards and shit like that so
1: hang on a minute isn't David Icke the sort of famous conspiracy theorist yeah uh who believes the royal family are lizards was he not himself he was a goalkeeper, goalkeeper? so Ramsdale is kind of the prophesized nemesis to David Icke the lizard goalkeeper He's that Icke has always lived in fear of yeah <laughs> The whole subplot. To this oh god! Okay. But... Speaking of goalkeepers, I know. On, go on, you, go I know. On. I haven't let you ask question for ages. That's okay. But I saw a good question here that okay. was related to goalkeepers. Maybe you were going to say the same. You said string of goalkeepers. It's DJ Rad B. No, and no, I thought no. it was interesting. Different one. <laughs> they said, "Are we okay with a runerson every now and again?" if we get a Ramsdale or a Raya, we didn't get Raya, but we tried the hardest and he looks great. I.e. a low profile mistake that doesn't financially hamstring the club while we build a series of smaller bets rather than 50 million or 72 million pound risks.
2: I genuinely don't know how to answer that question. Um, yeah. Cause I just think it don't was think my
1: catchphrase, mate. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I, I think it was just a, a, a circumstance, wasn't it? Given everything that had happened with Emmy Martinez, and mm. like, I, I still don't think it was. I don't think I'm okay with it because it was just a bad signing. He wasn't yeah, good I, enough, you know. I don't think you can really excuse those kind of signings, even if you know it was temporary. Even if it wasn't exactly what we wanted to do, it still reflects on your 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 work. You know?
1: Yeah. I see the point of like if you can't get your main target, is it better to Mm. do something that's just expedient and inexpensive? But I would sort of argue no. Like if you like if Arsenal weren't gonna get Raya last season, then Ramsdale moved last summer. Mm for 18 million less than we've paid this summer yeah like so I kind of feel like if you can't get your number one target go for number two don't go for number 300 just because it's cheap
2: (laughs) and because the goalkeeping coach knows him well yeah yeah kind
1: Uh, of like uh, and I think ultimately what happens in those situations is you get stuck with a player you can't really move and I and I Mm. I also think that like, if Runossen ends up back in the squad as, like, third-choice goalkeeper or something, it's not a disaster. But that's because that player never plays. Like, you can maybe apply what this question suggests to goalkeepers, to back up goalkeepers. But I th- I'd say any outfield position, mm. no, definitely don't do that. Mm because they'll have to play.
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, You know, goalkeeper is quite specific and we were desperate, but I I still think we we could have done better. Here's one also about goalkeepers from Aaron Power, who's at Aaron Power 17. He said, what do you think about uh, Thibaut Courtois' interview bringing up player welfare and money? I'm sure you guys agree with it, but do you think we may hit a point where if there is a mass protest from players, any type of difference could be made? And just to put this in context, he was talking about, I think, having to play a third, fourth choice Playoff final, right. fi- final, yeah, yeah. third, uh, fourth playoff uh, for the Nations League. Like, very few people gave a fish's tit about the final itself. Nobody, nobody cared about third or fourth. And his point was that this is just another game on the telly, they can sell the rights for it. It's a money based decision. And he's talking about, you know, World Cup next November, when are players gonna get rest? We're all gonna get injured, he said, we're gonna get injured and that's gonna be that.
1: Mm-hmm. It was a quite amazing interview actually. It's very rare to hear a footballer mm. talk like that um against the governing bodies. I suppose it's complicated by the fact that as the demands on footballers increase in general, so does the pay packet, and um, they. How can I how can I put it? To a certain extent, they know what they're getting into. You know, like they're mm. very well rewarded, and it, it's not ideal, but they are very well paid. So I think, I, I I don't know how much public sympathy they would gain in such a movement, but it's why this whole conversation around the World Cup and the international breaks is interesting because as much as there is a financial incentive for those discussions, I do think sooner or later people have to look at player welfare if they want to mm. preserve the quality of the game. I mean, we saw, I think in the pandemic and the, the, the crazy schedule that produced the impact that can have on performance and the the quality of the actual games we see mm. it does feel like if we just keep bleeding these footballers dry eventually and i hate to use that word again the product will suffer yeah
2: i mean i think when a player like courtois a high profile player and let's um acknowledge that he's a goalkeeper as well it's not the uh they have an it's easy, easy yeah. ride, but you know, the physical demands on a goalkeeper are not quite the same as a player who's running 10, 11, 12 kilometers every game. But I think when a player of his stature starts to speak out about something like this, it, it, people should listen. People should listen. Yeah. And you know, I, I, I'm sure behind the scenes, when you know, we, we either think of footballers as injured or fit. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's not that binary. And it's really
2: not that binary. You know, there are levels of fitness and levels of injury, and players are playing through pain with aches and strains and niggles and injections and all of those kinds of things to get them through games. And, you know, I think in some cases, it has brought about serious injury for certain players because they've been pushed too far too soon, whatever it might be. Um But when someone like Courtois speaks up about this, um, you know, the World Cup every two years, the European Championship every two years, you know, it's... You've got to listen to the players and the quality of the football that we get as fans, as TV viewers, as observers from far and wide. You know, if that diminishes, then... you know, the game itself becomes less attractive and then you've less reason to have a world cup every two years, you know? Mm. So Mm. you've got to find the balance. I just think, I do think it is ridiculous now though. Um, you know, there, there doesn't appear to be any substantial time off for players to recharge their batteries. Like you say, they get well paid. They're very well, well rewarded. You know, the kind of money that, you know, a lot of people out there will think, well, who gives a shit if you get a hamstrings train? You still get paid. Who cares yeah. about you? You know, but, um, at the end of the day, they want to do their jobs to the best of their abilities. And I think, um, I think at some point there might be a coming together of players who are saying, no, you know, enough now. We have to have a certain amount of mandated rest every season because, you know, they're going away and playing like three international games in these international breaks sometimes, you know. So Mm -hmm. it is crazy, but it's a debate that's been going on for a long time and so far there hasn't been any kind of solution.
1: And I think you're right. I think it would have to be the players that would Mm. sort of make a really concerted effort um, to change that. This was a really important question from Al Wayne who's at al wayne seventy five and Al says, "Why is it impossible to say Ben White's name without saying Ben? You know what do you know what he means there? I know exactly what he means. It just white he's a first name funny. plus surname guy,
2: yeah, first name yeah, he is because even when I'm writing the blog sometimes. You know, you, it seems wrong just writing White, because normally White. what I would do, my convention would be to use somebody's full name first. first so if I'm talking yeah. about, you know, the first time I mention Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, I will say Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, but afterwards just use his surname, as is mm-hmm. the custom, like Theo Walcott, and then it becomes Walcott, whatever it might be. But it doesn't seem quite right with, with Ben White. I don't know what it is. It's the one-syllable... Name,
1: I think it might just be that the shortness of the syllables. Um, like if
2: he was called Benjamin White,
1: would yeah, we be, we'd be dropping him? that Benjamin? We would, wouldn't we? He'd just be White. Ben White. I wonder. Yeah, like I wonder if that will wear off over time. Do you know what I mean? Like, will will we start calling him White? white. Whitey. White. You know.
2: Yeah, I don't know.
1: White. I'm trying to think if there's anyone else in the Arsenal squad that applies to, to quite the same extent. I don't think it does. No, I don't think it does. I mean, obviously there are players who are determined to be known by just their first name, like Thomas or Gabriel, or Gabriel Cedric. But Ben White, maybe it'll always just be Ben White. Maybe you should have Ben White on the back of his shirt. To be honest, a bit of extra revenue for the club. Yeah, a few extra letters in each one. Yeah. Hmm. Um, but yeah, it's odd. Now I'm going to think about that every time we say Ben White for ben the remainder White. of us doing this podcast.
2: We'll just keep calling him Ben White. Or do we yeah. try and bring about the change by just calling
1: him White? White. It feels horrible, though. It, it feels does. wrong.
2: And calling him Ben just feels too familiar. I don't know. Yeah. I can't call him. Who might call him Ben? So
1: We don't know him. Yeah. Ben did well there. No, no. White did well there. No,
2: White,
1: yeah. Ben White did well. Yeah, that sounds right. That's it, Ben White.
2: Ben forever. White. Ben White forever. Okay, here is a question from where is it gone now? Um, J D. Who's at J Desi twenty five? He said with Jack training with us. Oh. Rumors with regards Ox. And Ramsey not playing much for Juve. If you were forced to get one of them back to Arsenal, who would you choose and why? I mean, the Ox thing has got to be the most ludicrous thing I've heard in a long time.
1: Do it all. Get the band back together, I say. Um, bring Tomaszewski out of retirement. <laughs> you know. I, I. Well, first of all, I'm really glad that the club have reached out to Jack and, mm. you know, Given him this opportunity, somewhere to train, somewhere to study his coaching badges. I think that's really nice, um, and I think it's it shows uh, loyalty to a player who came through the academy and was a fantastic servant. But I think mm. also fans are going to love that, aren't they? And you know, it's a it's a heartwarming thing him back there. I also was really pleased to see David Seaman, albeit yeah. informally involved with the academy. You know. I do feel like there was a kind of odd period where, um, towards the end of Arsene Wenger's reign, maybe, or just before the end, it was sort of quite. It felt like it was quite. He was very discerning about who he would and wouldn't mm. let b- back into the club. In some ways, um, and that's really not the case now. You know, we're full of ex-players in all sorts of roles. Um, and even people like Jack and... and See, look, just Jack. You can just say Jack with him. Mm. Um, and David Seaman coming back. It's great to see. Um, I don't foresee either Aaron Ramsey or Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain returning to the club, though, I must say. Mm. Do you?
2: No. No, I mean, What's I don't... What's
1: going know. on with Oxlade-Chamberlain? I don't really know. So he's now 28. Um, what... Like, what, what? what's his standing at Liverpool right now? I don't know. I, I, I'm not really sure. I don't know.
2: Is he playing? Mm. Is he injured? Let's have a look.
1: He's played one, started one Premier League game, came on in another. Um, started a League Cup game, a couple of substitute appearances in the Champions League. Right. So, so he's on the fringes of the team, you know?
2: Hmm. Yeah, I don't know why we would bring him back. Um Where does he play? Does anyone know central midfield?
1: Does he though? Is he though? Th- is it according Are to they? this who scored data? <laughs> he does right. Um, um,
2: no, I mean that that ship has well and truly sailed. I don't think Jack is is um, you know the, the fact that he hasn't got any kind of club probably tells you a bit about his ability to play at the Arsenal level. Ramsey look he's playing for Juventus not really playing a great deal but you know of the three he's about the only one that you could find a place in the team for
1: for sure yeah and I don't see you know somebody else asked about you know might Jack become a a transfer in January with the African Cup of Nations I don't see it but I can never ever rule it entirely out because of the extraordinary Sol Campbell signing that happened you know a (laughs) few years ago when he came back to train and ended up You know, playing, Mm. scoring in the Champions League and playing in the North London Derby. I mean, that was unbelievable. So never say never.
2: Okay, a couple of quick ones to finish us off. Tony Kent, who's at 2-0 down, says, Do you think it's possible for Katie McCabe to score normal goals, or are we (laughs) stuck with seeing
1: her score incredible goals every week? It's the Thierry Henry problem. You know, we need a fox in the box. I'm sick of these 40-yarders. I mean... (laughs) She is having her own private goal of the season competition, yeah, it seems. Yeah, amazing. Amazing. I actually think I preferred the one she scored this week to last week. It just was such a... I mean, she scored a sensational goal last week for about 40 yards out on the right touchline. But this one at the weekend, the take and the volley into mm. the far top corner... It was nonchalant, wasn't it? It is. Sumptuous, yeah. Really fantastic goal. Um, and great to see the women's team... You know, bounce back from a very difficult Barcelona game. Mm. Uh, on the domestic front, they're absolutely fly.
2: Mm. Yeah, brilliant goal, and what a season! Uh, well, not just this season, but what a period of form she is going through in her career, Katie McCabe. Incredible. Mm. Um, mm. Final one from Highbury underscore Lover, who is at non-negotiable CF. Like that little nod to Spanish football club naming. Uh, he says, uh, "Which Arsenal player would you pick to be the next James Bond?" If there was an opportunity?
1: Great question. I saw one like this last week, actually. I've seen the James Bond film, have you?
2: No. I'm not really a big Daniel Craig fan.
1: Right, I yeah, think. Yeah.
2: He reminds me of a potato. Sure. Um, and I'm not really a big fan of the new James Bond films.
1: The name is Potato. James, Mr. Potato James, James, James potato, potato, potato James Potato um, it, 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 they are weird the new Bond films in that they sort of try and straddle quite a sort of earnest realistic mm. approach to things but then they'll occasionally throw in the sort of odd one liner and it feels very out of context they've lost yeah. some of that sense of light
2: I remember so. one of the maybe one of his first ones mm. I went to go see in the cinema and like the baddie was just not you know, you need a bit of a pantomime villainy to, to a baddie, a James Bond baddie. And this was like, this guy was like, ha, ha, ha. see if you can stop me, Mr. Bond. I'm going to take most of the water in this particular region and keep it in a tank in the desert. And you won't be able to get it. I was thinking, that is that what James Bond is saving? Like a, yeah. some water? There's loads of it. You know, yeah. so I yeah, yeah, I yeah. found them a bit like uninspiring, and they don't quite know whether they want to be old James Bond or Jason Bourne films or whatever. So I'm not I interested think, in the new one. On the at subject all.
1: of that, by the way, I can see Granite Shaka playing an excellent Bond villain. Um, I think he's got the right. But
2: sort he'd get of himself sent
1: off about 20 minutes into
2: the film, and it'd be
1: useful. Well, they always lose the Bond villains. Don't, get, don't worry about that. <laughs> um, if James Bond. Do you know what? I think it's time to sort of modernize um, James Bond. Katie McCabe. is Katie McCabe. I think, he, McCabe. <laughs> I think uh, James Bond needs to be sort of suave, well dressed, but what if he was quite a progressive guy as well after all this time? I think if we could get him back from loan, Hector Bellerin. As James as Bond. Bond. Yeah. i'd love james complete with accent with the accent you know?
2: that'd be amazing yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, but imagine the suits he'd really look the part you know
2: yeah 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 like willie uh,
1: wonka have you got an, a, an alternative for
2: just trying to think <laughs> from the, from the current squad i mean could kieran tierney do a an homage to sean connery, sean connery.
1: yeah maybe do we
2: don't have uh, a do we have any Irishman who could do a Pierce Brosnan?
1: Not sure we do. I don't actually, sadly. Um, I,
2: I think if you could channel an Ainsley Maitland Niles penalty into sure. the character of James Bond, like one of those cold as ice little chips, you know, down the middle, Iceman penalty, Maitland Niles is James Bond. How about that?
1: I'd like that. Yeah. I'd like that. The, the bird catcher becomes James Bond. Yeah. Sure. I like it.
2: Okay. Well, look, um, let's leave it there. Um, there is still an interlore. We don't play again until Monday, so we're going to have to do next week's cast Extra on a Tuesday. Okay good idea yeah good idea because we'll know what's happened in the game
1: against yeah that'll be Crystal easier college. than just guessing yeah, to be honest yeah, with yeah, you yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. when uh, we come face to face with well. Patrick Vieira of course so that's an interesting yeah. dynamic to that but look we'll talk more about that during the week um, we'll leave it there for now thank you as always for being here and for listening and uh, um, goodbye I think is what I'm trying to say here we'll catch you on the next yeah
1: bye bye